0: Hello everyone and welcome to The Bigger Picture. Normally on The Bigger Picture I write articles and features and essays. This is going to be something a little different because here I'm going to be putting out an audio piece where I interview the wonderful Nora Bateson. Some listeners, which feels odd to say instead of readers, but some listeners will know Nora Bateson's work. She's the founder and president of the International Bateson Institute and is one of the leading voices in the study of systems and systems change. Although, as you'll hear, she prefers the term systems learning. So Nora's work really asks the question how we can improve our perception of the complexity we live within so we may improve our interaction with the world. Nora is also one of the faculty members on my upcoming course, New Ways of Knowing, which begins in December, and you can find in the notes in Substack if you want to check that out. We talk a little bit about the course in this piece, but we also and mainly talk about her new book, Combining, which is really fantastic. I've been reading it over the last few days, and it's kind of a combination of systems theory, poetry, art. And really touches on something that I think Nora does better than most people, which is the implicit knowing and learning involved in really grappling with complexity. In combining, she invites us into an ecology of communication where nothing stands alone and every action sets off a chain of incalculable consequences. She challenges conventional fixes for our problems, highlighting the need to tackle issues at multiple levels, understand interdependence, and embrace ambiguity. So all of those themes we will be exploring in this conversation which was after a year or so since Rebel Wisdom ended and I haven't interviewed anyone in this format really refreshing a lot of fun and also just wonderful to reconnect with Nora who I've interviewed many times and uh, collaborated with a few times as well. So without any further ado here is Nora Bateson. Nora, it is as always a huge pleasure to be talking to you. We've we've done this some version of this a few times, but um yeah, it's it's really good to see you again and I'm excited to talk today about your brand new book combining as well mm. as the the course that I have coming up that you uh, are a, a teacher on, faculty member on. So, uh, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you again and I'm so happy we're having this time together.
0: The first thing I wanted to ask you about was something that I think probably drew me to your work originally, which was this difference between systems change and mm-hmm. systems learning. Why is that difference important? And how would you define the difference?
1: Okay. Well, the, there's a lot that we could go into here. So I'll try to not turn this into a dissertation. Um, but in, I could sum it up quickly by saying I see learning as change. Um, but when you look at change as learning, you're able to potentially to engage with it in a different way, to, to participate in another way. Um, so one of the ways in which uh, you might participate with change making is this idea that you are an agent who is going to do something to the system to make it change okay in 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 that thinking there's all sorts of hangovers and ghosts of very mechanistic um, industrial ideas um, if i'm asking how is the system learning to be in its world Immediately, my focus, my perception is going to not just be on whatever it is I think I'm looking at, but all of those relational processes that it is within. Okay. So if you are looking at a crooked tree in the forest, and there's lots of other trees of the same species that are standing straight and tall in the same forest, but this one's crooked. And so it's somehow wrong that it's crooked. We have to change this tree. Now, there's a whole lot of ethics questions we could have right there, but let's skip those for the moment. And look at how the thinking might begin of how to change the tree. We could clip it. We could tie it. We could do things to the tree. And what we're looking at is the tree as a tree. Okay. If you ask, how is this tree learning to be in its world? What does this formation tell us about how it's learning to be in its world? Immediately, attention goes to where the shadows are falling, where the water is running, where the insects are crawling, where the the nutrients are strong, where the all sorts of aspects of relational mutual learning that that tree is in. And then when you ask, how do we, you know, participate with the way this tree and the other organisms are learning to be in this spot in the forest, the entry point, the approach, the attitude of the approach is very different.
0: Yeah, the there's this thought experiment that comes up that that leads into the next thing I want to ask you about related to what you just said. Um, It's not actually a thought experiment, it's an experiment that was conducted um, with English speakers, and I think it was Japanese speakers, and they had them both, I don't know if you, this was years ago I read about this, but they both watched... a little video little probably like a minute video where there's a bunch of people uh, i probably remember slightly wrong but the gist of it was it's a bunch of people in like a kind of field and there's like a, a vase on a table or something like that and they're all milling around everyone's wearing different clothes all the stuff is happening and then someone knocks over the table and the vase smashes and they ask the english speakers okay what what happened in the video and English speakers will tend to to be like, okay, it was it was the woman in the red shirt. She knocked it over. And what happened is she was talking to the person in the blue shirt. She went over there, and then she 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 tipped over. And they'll say, okay, what well, what was happening in the background? And they'll go, um, I don't know. It's like maybe there was a tree. And then they asked the Japanese speakers the same thing, and they were um tended to be much better at looking at what was the context things were happening in, what was the background, and the asking who did what when. And why Mm. that they were more likely to have not quite noticed who had knocked it over and the idea being that we are in the west so to speak or in at least places that have these languages we are so focused on the kind of mechanistic thinking that you laid out which is i think partly why systems change and systems theory is so mechanistic Um, whereas other cultures that have a different language and therefore you know somewhat of a different way of seeing the world can look at the more contextual Um, processes going on perhaps a bit easier. So I guess my question is, what on earth do we do (laughs) if you speak this language? You know, can we we train ourselves to start seeing the world as this more organic, interconnected process?
1: Yeah, and I would say practice. You know, I think, again, if you're thinking about training, you're going to get caught in the same web. But it's the practice. And practice is something that comes really, for me, without um, any particular contextual bounds. So I think the practice of this is raising kids. The practice is making breakfast. The practice is getting dressed. The practice is being with friends. The practice is taking care of my own body. The practice is being in conversation with you. The practice is asking this question, who can you be when you're with me? who can I be when I'm with you and attending to these ways in which we are setting context with limitations for each other. Um, And that is never not on. So the idea that this is some sort of a professional enterprise or professional development program, um, I would, I would set to the side and say, no, no, this is actually about how you do life all day, every day.
0: Yeah, that's that absolutely resonates with me so strongly. And that that question, "Who are you when you're with me?" You write about that in combining, and I actually wrote it down to ask you about. because I love that. You know, this is difference between personal development and how we're showing up in different contexts. With you is absolutely true. We all play. We're all different in different contexts. And mm-hmm. the I also like this distinction you just made between training and practice, because there is something. That, you know, there is this tradition now, and I actually run retreats, so I'm including myself in this, of people going off to somewhere else for, say, five or six days to develop, to work on themselves. And this is incredibly powerful, and it's a great thing to do. But um, Stephen Jenkinson, the, the you know, I mm. don't know if you've come across him, he, when I spoke to him a few years ago, he was saying, adults don't need to retreat, <laughs> right? Mm. We need to be in the world and immersed in it and embedded in it. And so I suppose there's some something Am I right in thinking that you're talking about a kind of deep immersion and kind of awakeness in everything that we're doing and everything around us?
1: I mean, if you just, you know, take a look at your blue jeans and you start to ask yourself what relationships are in these blue jeans? Where did the thread come from? Where was it dyed? Who designed them? Where did I get them? Where have I worn them? How did I get to be the size that I am, that these fit me? Um... The, the, the cotton fields and the transportation and the, you know, pretty soon you're looking at rules and regulations and political um, policy making legal systems. You're looking at trade regulations and relationships. You're looking at the idea of fashion, the idea of success, the idea of identity. Um, and, and so it doesn't really matter what you're doing. All of these things are there. The, the systems that we are within are everywhere. So there's no need to take a retreat and go make a map <laughs> of them. We, they, they're right there in front of you, in, in your telephone, in your cup of tea, everywhere.
0: And there's there's something about, I think this points to something as well that I think is very important about, about your work and about the idea of moving away from this mechanistic model. Because if I try and look at, um, I did this one time, actually, I was sitting, I used to live on a houseboat, and I was sitting in, in the middle of London on the, we had a decking on the boat, and I was, um, you know, I've been reading, I've been as often reading about complexity and and uh, kind of, you know, tuning into, it. I was kind of meditating, and I looked at the drain pipe of the apartment building opposite the um, the boat, and I was kind of, you know, contemplating the drain pipe, and then I started, you know, as you're describing, thinking about, okay, the water flow where's the water going to go after the drain pipe why is the drain pipe built in that way how old is the building you know who lives in the building what's the purpose of it you know and then so it starts expanding out what right. i loved about that as well is is that the city this distinction between nature and city which is very convincing when you're in a city if you feel like you're in a kind of bubble you're not actually though in that bubble right and you can if you can tune into the land underneath you and the the, 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 the shared sky the water system is shared as well um then then it starts to open up um something quite deep but um and and what i think it points to partly is that we don't it is i think cognitively impossible in some ways to hold a big enough map for the complexity of the world right you can't your map is always going to be faulty and you know fading away so what i what i love about your work is that there is also a a kind of felt sense or almost like a a lived felt sense. Could you talk about that a little bit? I was almost going to say aesthetic appreciation, but it's more than that, I think. So how how would you describe how to sort of immerse or be with what's
1: there? Okay, this is something that I learned, um, I think at least in part from my father, who um, of course was very... um, important in the beginning of cybernetics and systems theory but i would never say that his work was cybernetics or systems theory because he was actually working with life and both of those fields tipped into mechanistic habits um so he he if you've ever read any of his books you might have noticed that the language um, is a bit merciless and there's really just not any points in there where you can catch a good sound bite to make a point somewhere. Um, You have to have the sentences around it to include the context so that you can put, put something together. And he And I think his father as well had a a really infinite and uh, dedicated affection for life. And so I think what you're feeling as an aesthetic or a vibe, an atmosphere, a tone, um, is, is actually a sense of love for life and in that love is the caution to not break it and so that comes out in a lot of ways and it should come out in a lot of ways right you are a whole ecological system and so you're not just your intellect you're not just your emotion you're not just your your dreams or your spirituality or your body you're 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 your ancestors' experiences. You are your microbiome's connection to the seasons. Where's the edge of you, right? And so I feel that when I am writing or working with complex systems or life is really the word we're talking about here, um, that it's really important to stay alive. It's really important that that expression itself be alive. So for me, what that means is that there's room for movement. So in that's one of the reasons there's so much poetry in the book and story is that there's room for the way that you read it to change. And if you read it next to another piece, you will see different things in it. And for me, this is ecological. This is what ecological communication, which is a big theme of the book, is the, the ecology of communication. Um, how, how we hold ecological communication so that our communication can embrace ecology or, or life. Um, and by that, I don't just mean forests and oceans. I mean that ecology of selves that you and I are
0: yeah that's that's beautifully said, and I love the the use of poetry and combining and story and imagery as well right this mm, the sense yeah. of and i I've always thought it's funny i'm so I'm speaking to sophie strand later um he was of course a poet and also a, a faculty member on on new ways of knowing, and I'm very curious about this uh, this idea of Uh, poetry and storytelling um, being one of the best ways to engage with complexity because of exactly what you just mentioned their space and you talk about this in the book as well having space between things and having the space of the relationality between things and the ambiguity I think is is so important Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about how this this all kind of looks in in terms of how we communicate with each other because you just mentioned that and maybe through the lens of warm data because people some people might not be familiar people familiar with your work i'm sure will be familiar with warm data but there will be people who aren't um and that's something you've been doing for a number of years it's a practical process uh we we used to have um some of your uh trainees who would deliver it at a, you know at rebel wisdom events people always really like it so could you describe what what's the idea behind it and what actually is the practice
1: okay well let's that, Differentiate a couple of things: um, warm data and warm data lab or warm data practices. So, the warm data is the idea that there is information that's transcontextual or alive. So, when we you ask the question of how is something, what is the difference between learning and change? Um, that question is very central to the research that I've been working on for the last ten years, and how. Do we actually deal with that information? So if you, just as an example, I gave you the tree. Now let's do another learning example. Let's say you're learning to play violin. All right, so where is the learning? Is the learning in your your body and your muscular system? Is the learning in your intellect? Is the learning emotional? Is it a connection to the music? Is it cultural? Is it in the actual um, engineering and the, the beauty of the instrument itself? Is it in your family? Is it in relationship to your teacher? Okay, so I think you're getting this, th- that obviously it's in the way those things are combining. And because it's in the way they're combining, if we want to find the information about the learning, we're, we're actually faced with a very difficult question of what does that information look like when it changes from, from context to context. The way your muscles are learning is in, in one thing, but your muscles are somehow shaped and, and made um, more capable. Like if you get your heart broken, you may find that you can suddenly play things in ways you didn't play before. So, somehow, your emotions and your muscles and your intellect and your, they're all shaping each other. Where's the information? So, this was the question we actually started with at the International Bateson Institute that led to this need for another idea of what information is, so that that information itself could be alive. It could move through multiple contexts and actually be as complex as the system. Um, So this is important because there's an awful lot happening in the day that is not on the transcript, that is not measurable, that is not accountable, that is not, that is not documentable, but is absolutely there. How do people fall in love? How do they fall out of love? How does what, what's in the conversation that's just in the meta messaging that isn't actually anything that anybody says. Um, so, all day, every day, we are actually engaging mostly with the warm data, but we've prioritized data that can be um, can be isolated and ossified um, and 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 declared, which is fine. It's just that that's just one portion of the information. Okay, so this idea of transcontextual information comes to be, and that's warm data. So then the warm data lab practice is the practice of actually looking at how people come to understand complexity. Where is it living? Um, and you mentioned storytelling. So when I tell a story from my life, any story as long as it's a story from my life it doesn't matter if it's about you know going to the dentist when i was a little girl and you know being afraid of the needle or whatever it is right that story is going to be imbued with transcontextual process that story even in those few words that i said about going to the dentist talks about medicine it talks about health it talks about family it talks about economy it talks about you know the, the the fears of of violence and all kinds of things are in that one little story education um ideas of identity and beauty And so we live in a world that is already completely complex. And my frustration around teaching complexity and systems thinking was always that it somehow got out of life. And we were analyzing the complexity in this weird abstraction where actually the complexity that we live in and that we are is right on board. And so how then, my question was how then can I create a process through which groups of people will be able to um, explore multiple contexts and ways of knowing so that they recognize complexity as being something in their own memories not something in a map on post-its on a board. Um, So we start with a question and the question holds quite a bit of possibility. Something like, I don't know, what's home in a changing world or what's risk in a changing world? And it's got in a changing world on it. So you don't get answers to the question, what is home or what is risk in a changing world keeps it moving again, movement is really important And then people will actually move around the room and go to different contexts and have that conversation. What's home in a changing world through the context of family? And then they might go over to economy, and then they might go over to history or technology or health or education. So they're looking at all these different contexts. And in the practice of the lab, there is... um, something significant happening that is not visible. Um, The purpose of a warm data lab is not to get a bunch of insights that you can harvest. That is not what it's about. Um, What it's about is allowing those different contextual conversations to stir up impressions, memories, things that get said maybe, but a lot of the most important stuff is things that don't get said the story I decide not to tell, or the way your story changed my story. And I edited things into a different frame than I usually do because I'm perceiving them through other contextual lenses. Um, So what happens then? Why is this important? Well, because it might look like nothing happened. But a couple hours later, you might be in another conversation with someone and actually be able to perceive what they're saying really differently. Or you could be in a work meeting and have an idea that's allowed to come in through this multiple contextual perception that you're in. Or you might go home and have a conversation with your kids that's really in a different tone and possibility. And they might go to school the next day, having been seen and heard in a whole new way and be able to have a conversation with their friend at school in a whole new way. And that kid may be able to Right. So when you're working with systemic process, you're working with things that are beyond first order. Most of what we do in the day and the way we think about problems and solutions is identification and action causality at first order. This is the problem we have to solve this problem but with systemic and and work or with complexity or rather with life nothing's ever happening at first order the first order is the consequence but what we're actually looking at is things that have been responses to things and responses to things from multiple contexts why could you suddenly play that piece of music that day where did it come from well you didn't sleep much last night and you had a bad dream and you you know, your heart was broken and then you woke up and there was a beautiful sunrise or whatever, right? There's a whole set of contextual circumstances that come into being that somehow make it. So your breath and your body and your, your, your accessibility to the music are open. Who knows what it is? I mean, and the humility that's necessary there is, necessary. We don't know what happens that after this happens, after this happens, after this happens, relationships that make relationships, communication that opens the possibility for more communication. It's one thing I'm loving is when I hear people say about combining my book, when they say, I'm writing, I'm writing so much since I'm reading your book. And I think, yes, there's some language that's open some way in which they're suddenly it's, it's not just a book to read. It's a book that then you start writing. That's cool.
0: That's very cool. Yes. I find myself jotting lots down. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah. You know, this, this, I think taps into something so fundamental about the times we live in from my perspective, you know, I, in In my book, the bigger picture, I make this uh, the argument that the psychedelic well I, I took the question can psychedelics change the world because that was the big promise of the psychedelic counterculture and and what really got me interested in, in that you know so the systems change aspect and where where it kind of led me was um you know kind of similar territory in the sense that it's not about the insights that people have, although they might be personally very meaningful and you know also you know uh, I've, people have solved real life problems in their a- areas that also happens but that's that's great but I think what's much more pro- profound is that experiences like that um, or like a warm data lab or a breathwork session there's so many different types or a beautifully rich conversation they teach us how to embody a different way of being which helps us to be in the world in a much more in tune way with the complexity around us and so it's really about this idea of um actually i got this idea from john verveke uh of exaptation which Mm -hmm. he talks about as this um comes from evolution this idea that evolution takes uh something that we had already like our tongues and goes well that's great for speaking let's not make something new let's use that for speaking right so so my dog has a tongue but she can't speak well she can speak but she can't speak in words um and then in the same way um you know cognitive science suggests that when we learn tai chi for example we can become more balanced in the way we think about ideas right so what we're doing with our body what we're doing with our minds and souls then directly impacts how we're solving problems how we're connecting how we're communicating with each other and i think that's such a fundamental paradigm shift away from what from what you're pointing to, which is this first order obsession of, okay, we're going to solve the problem, which I think most many of our policies in different nations around the world still focus on, which feels tremendously out of date. Um, And so, you know, my interest in this is that what we don't need is, yes, while new ideas are important, I think the whole tech industry and the whole promise of big tech solving all our problems um is flawed because the problem isn't in the thing, the problem is in who we are, um, I think most fundamentally. Um, so I wanted to 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 widen out a little bit and ask you about this um the sort of bigger, bigger piece. I know you had a you had a conversation with um Daniel Schmachtenberger recently, and I know he he's very into looking at that, zooming way out and looking at where the world is going. So from from your perspective, you know, where do you and I know this is a big question, but how do you feel about our evolution right now as a global civilization and do you what what do you think is is required of us right now like what where do you feel the most um I don't know where do you feel yourself drawn the most for for moving through the times we live in
1: well I think the interesting thing for me is that the the places where there's a stuckness and a brokenness and a uh our crooked tree if you will um is is locked because there's no way to to have the conversation there's no way to address the thing explicitly the places where our deep premises and assumptions that guide then the language that guide then the the presuppositions around what it is to be alive in the world. Okay. How are we learning to be in our world is the question I'm asking here. And for right now, that means going to school and paying taxes and participating in a whole lot of systems that then reconfirm themselves into our bodies, our minds, our identities, our emotions, our lovability, credibility, relationship with nature, et cetera. Um, and the strange thing is, is that if you, tr- I find that if I try to address that stuckness there, I just get further into it. And um, so that the, you know, the ecology of the conversation about ecology doesn't have any ecology in it. It's an, it's an industrial framework of a of a conversation around how to live in the world in a way that creates vitality. And that's not going to do anything, but get us deeper in. So here's the, 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 the itchy part of this is that the deep changes are in places that we can't see or manipulate. And, um, That's exactly the thing we want to do is shine the light on them and then make them change. And that's not how life moves. That's not how evolution works. So I think my interest is in actually addressing the whole question from a different direction so that we're not trying to change the relationships or trying to change the parts or trying to change the system, but we're actually paying attention to what's possible. What's possible for me to say to you right now? What's possible? Who's it possible for you to be this? And where did those limitations sit? So in this book, I broke a lot of rules about what it's possible to say and how it's possible to say things and and what what it means to you know be serious in your intellectual pursuit or what it means to be a serious artist and um i think that that is where what's important is what we're putting side by side and how that space is given to make connections in new ways, to make associations and impressions that move and shift each other. Um, It's sort of more like tending the soil of a garden than actually tending the garden. Um, So what's, you know, what's it possible for us to think about? What's it possible? There's a whole lot of people who are interested in imagination right now. And I'm very, very, very careful with that one, because it's all too easy to believe that you are generating new things from your imagination, but they are informed by your experiences and your contextual life. And so very often, the things that we think are coming from imagination are just sort of coming out of our experience. and, And in that way, they just reproduce the same problems but not all imagination is like that some imagination is coming from some connection to that thing that is alive through us and how do you know the difference how do you know the difference between intuition and um and your own experiences so I guess to make a long story short what I see is that there's possibility everywhere there is a whole world of possibility it just doesn't look like the possibility we think we're looking for and so my my tending is to that place where there's sensitivity and and possible perception shift. So things like synesthesia are really important to me. Things where you say, okay, draw the flavor of the tea or, you know, what is the texture, draw the texture of the poem or dance the, the brightness of the light. Um, and in, when you're asked to do that, you, you're, you're having to cross your senses and new things can come loose. So recognizing that our sensorial processes are habituated into familiar patterns and those patterns are rife with double binds and hypocrisies and all kinds of issues and and how do you how do you loosen them how do you allow new learning new perception in you know the experiment with the um you know the gorilla that runs through the basketball game and most of the time people don't see it They won't see it because they weren't looking for it and they weren't looking for it because they don't generally see gorillas running through basketball games. So there's the problem of perception and, and being kind of caught in perception of the familiar, the things that are already metabolized into your understanding of what life is. But fortunately, fortunately, you know somehow organisms do know how to evolve they know how to grow a limb when they have no idea what that limb is there is this cache of of acceptation that is like this this thing that's lurking outside of the familiar zone right so an organism wants to continue but in order to continue things have to discontinue because all the organisms are changing together so there is so much possibility. But it's not where we're looking for it. So maybe, maybe it's possible that we can get there.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. That's, um, yeah, I, you, you had this phrase just now, tending to the soil. And it, what it made me f- think of was um, that it, you know, for, for the many people out there who are interested in moving our world towards, let's say, a more sustainable, kinder, uh, more, let's say, human, human way of being than the, the other potential of a fully mechanistic, technocratic kind of f- uh, future of all, all the many futures we have in front of us. Um, I think there's this, there's so many people out there who have this real heartfelt desire. And and yet the soil, I think you're right, that the soil that so many of us are trying to work from is um, exhausted and we need some kind of new soil. You know, I, I did a, um, a project earlier this year with a large um, sort of household name, uh, NGO focused on the environment. And it was just great. You know, it was, uh, I was working with a really great facilitator, both of us trying to get them to think trans contextually, to use your language, right, about what they're going to do for the next you know, five years. And it was really fascinating because the individual people were so clever and so fluid in their thinking, but the actual system, even if a very well-meaning system, just wouldn't really allow for the kind of, uh, let's say, letting go and letting something new arise that that as facilitators, I think we would hope for. So that was a really interesting kind of experience. And so I really resonate with this idea of creating new soil, because I agree with you, There there isn't... Um, that we need a newness and i think that's culturally true as well there's a repetition of art there's a repetition of our conflicts there's a, there's this kind of endless repetition and what what i like about what you're saying what's coming up for me is that from one perspective you could say right burn it all down we're going to start fresh and it's going to be this aggressive sort of new which is kind of what the answer of the current system would be we've had all these you know 500 years of revolutions and upheavals etc but there's something very different about taking a different stance and going uh, to the garden and quietly tending new soil. And I feel like that's a—I um, don't know. There's something quite beautiful about that image. Image to me, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think surrealism is really important.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, <laughs> those things that make us reach into ways of perceiving that are uncomfortable and disorienting. Um, which may be, I think, one of the benefits of the psychedelic experiences that you're talking about, but certainly poetry, art, music, um, getting lost, um, being in different cultures, learning different languages. Um, there's a lot of different ways to to stretch that practice of of... And I think for me, it starts with an understanding that um, I better be on the lookout because most of the things that I will think are interesting and important are probably neither. They are probably so soaked in my cultural habits that I have to be vigilant to keep an eye out that I'm not perpetuating existing systems. Um, And you see this with, you know, the way people talk about systemic racism, um, the presuppositions just around what it looks like to. uh, uh, Right. So train new leaders. Right. And in that sentence of training new leaders, there's oh a world of worlds of historical epistemological habits none of which lead to the kind of change that are we're actually talking about but it seems like a good idea doesn't it we got to train new leaders um there's no leader in a forest there's no training i mean or, or the thinking that we are in is inherently unecological and therefore it does not produce the kind of vitality that is needed for the ongoing life of our species. Um, one example that I use in the book around this is the example of the logo of the Sustainable Development Goals, which has these 17 brightly colored boxes, and each one is a description of one of the development goals to have clean soil, clean water, clean air, gender equality, education for all, well being, um, etc. And what that image tells us about the way that there is a sort of complicit understanding of how we identify and solve problems. Um, And if you put that image next to an image of a woman nursing her baby... You see that the way the body and the natural world addresses all those problems looks very different because in that image of a a mother nursing her baby is every single sustainable development goal, right? The, The mother, in order for our species to continue as mammals, we have to be able to feed the babies. And so that means that the mother's milk must be clean, It must be abundant. She must be fed and healthy. And the water that she drinks and the food that she eats must be grown in ways that allows her children's 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 children to be able to nurse their babies, which means the oceans need to be clean. And it means the people who make the clothes for the people who grow the food need to be able to also feed their babies. Um, And in that one in that. In that shift, you see a very different set of um, premises of ideas. Premises of 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 how are we learning to be in the world, and the the way, the elegance with which the natural. The nat. I mean, you could use a lot of different images. I'm just choosing this image of a mother nursing her baby because it's so it's emotional, it's intellectual, it's physical it's environmental it's political it's religion and spirituality it's gender it's um it's ecology it's its economics it's history it's the future all in one gesture
0: yeah that's beautiful i really i think that's a very powerful image um what, one of the things that points me to is um the difference obviously between implicit knowing and explicit knowing right and then also you know to draw on ian McGilchrist's work the the right hemisphere's view of the world which is interconnected and contextual in the left hemispheres which is literal and um direct you know he has this great example of a um, a man who had a stroke in his right hemisphere and the doctor came in and said how are you feeling And he said with my fingers right mm-hmm. not even not making a joke he just you the left hemisphere can't process that kind of implicit knowing it doesn't get it and so I think a lot of the systems change approaches while very well intentioned come from still a very let's say to use McGilchrist terms a very left hemisphere dominant approach and I, I think one of the things I feel happening or that I would like to happen and, and have chosen to do my part in in at least nudging towards is um is moving more towards the uh, uh, implicit interconnected view of the world because partly because in my experience and in my peak experiences in particular but also just day-to-day life it seems self-evident to me that that is how nature functions like you're saying Mm. that is the ecology that we live in it's it's how it's how the universe evolves and thrives and moves and and has its own kind of um way of way of being that we are often very at odds with and so yeah it does it does feel like there's a kind of I don't know if more and more people, my hope is more and more people are becoming interested in this implicit knowing that that you've been sort of you know pioneering for so many years. do Do you find that there's a there's a greater interest uh, in these circles towards that kind of way of way of seeing the world?
1: Um yes and no. Hmm. I mean, I think as the urgency increases, so does the idea that we can have a you know a really great global model? Of how people should eat, live, think, feel, and how much you know petroleum they can use and how much water they can have and how much protein they need, and that we can sort of create this big spreadsheet that would be the sustainable spreadsheet. Uh, and that, of course, is a, an example of the sort of industrial solutioning to. I mean, you know, this is this is how you make revolution. This is not how you <laughs> you can't do that. You can't tell people how to eat and how to think and how to feel and how much fish they can have and how many. You know, of course, that's not good. That's anyway. Our communities are way too divided, and there there will be no way to even address any of these events that we're coming into and are already here. By the way. Um, without a deeper kind of communing with each other that allows for the possibility of improvising our way through unprecedented times. Um, And so the thing is, is that there are some who are wanting to do that. Um, and, And a lot of times the that comes off really strangely but okay at least it's happening um and then there are those who just believe we have to have top-down exertion of control and so i don't know i mean i i guess you can see which team i'm on um but I I will just continue to give everything I possibly can to those possibilities that we don't know even exist yet. So for me, that's the thing that that I most want to nourish as the the things that are possible that we can't even perceive yet. And I uh, I want to do that with you. I want to be lost and disoriented with you, with our eyes open, and our our fingers. Sensing and our 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 ways of being curious to how other possibilities might look and feel. They just aren't coming from the places we think they're coming from. The, of that, I'm absolutely convinced.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah, and that's that that goes into the last thing I want to talk about, which is um, new ways of knowing the the course um, I have coming up starting in December, uh, which you'll be teaching on in the new year and the um oh god i just love that image it's just stuck with me the image of holding hands in the forest of everyone coming together because i think there is a kind of you know part of the idea behind the course was a joint in quite all of the courses i run always this but this one especially a joint process of inquiry and when i say joint i include myself in it because i'm i'm in this process right now of of development around the course and really immersion and even even earlier when you said getting lost. I had mm-hmm. to jot down oh that's a great exercise for people in one of the weeks to just intentionally get lost you know mm-hmm. it might be out in the world or it could be get lost in something just the feeling of lostness and just to explore that so it's um it's kind of a creative process that's unfolding but we do also you know know what's happening largely and one of the, the you know when we spoke about the course originally you were talking about an exercise you really wanted to do um around mm-hmm. transcontextual knowing and I, just, I thought yeah. it might be nice to just touch on that a bit but before the end what what what, what draws you to that and what what could people kind of expect from that session?
1: Okay, so uh, the exercise that we're talking about is this exercise that I developed actually for a, a Harvard course and it's called mapping somathecy and they wanted me to make a mapping exercise and I didn't want to make a mapping exercise because most of the time I find mapping exercises to be actually um, limiting the possibilities. You know, when you make a map of a space, you take out a lot of information. Um, so I I wasn't wanting to um, to do that, but I did it because I I had to. And uh, I have been developing this theory of samathesis. So sim for together, mathesis is the Greek for learning, which is a learning together. So it's again coming to that crooked tree and asking how is it in transcontextual mutual learning with the other organisms how is your family an example of transcontextual mutual learning if you look at your parents or your siblings or your kids or your cousins or your spouse or whatever and you ask not why are they being so irritating but how are they learning to be in their world what are the the transcontextual relational processes into which this way that they're being is is their crooked tree so this exercise, um, is an exercise of actually illustrating a living system or what I would call a symathysy a a, a, a mutual learning system. Um, and that could be your body. It could be your relationship to your kids. It could be your, you know, some situation that's happening in your life that you feel stuck in. It could be all sorts of things. Um, but to to embrace and explore the transcontextuality of it without doing the thing of making lots of little boxes and connecting them all right so how would you express a systemic grouping of relationships that are shaping each other if you didn't use any lines to just connect the concepts in other words so you might have <clears throat> like i might draw myself and my daughter and in whatever shape works for me or color or texture and then in the relationship what's there is it is it spiky is it pink is it green is it loopy is it what's what's the feeling in those relationships so it's a a way of bringing your sensory attention out of verbal or or out of verbal communication into um, another kind of expression of what's in the relationship. So you're not caught just making relationships into lines, all right, which is so much of what we do um, in, in this idea of doing systemic mapping is that we just attach things with lines. Um, and I don't have a single relationship in my life that looks like a line so what does the relationship feel like and then putting other relationships around it what do they feel like how is that shaping this shape and and so this your your picture or your some people move furniture some people create water processes i mean people have done everything with this um but your expression may not make sense to anybody else and that's fine it's not really about producing this for somebody else it's actually the 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 inquiry yourself of what what comes up when you begin to perceive how you are perceiving um so this is the mapping somatasy exercise and i've gotten so much out of this in my life i just i i wanted to share that with you that in moments where I've been really, really stuck and struggling, this one has been the one that has let me see where I wasn't tending Hmm. the relational processes around me and how I might be able to tend them differently.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. And I think everyone's going to get a lot out of it for sure. There's also this, um, you know, just that last point you made. I mean, this is so important to me is that so often this is true of personal growth processes or just different systems focused processes. We remove the relational, we remove the cultural. There's a kind of um, shying, especially in personal growth worlds, that sometimes a real shying away from what's going on mm-hmm. in culture or the nitty gritty or the, or the, you know, the complex. Um, and I'm really keen for this to be a process where we bring everything to it. You know mm-hmm. whether that's something personal whether it's cultural like you say whether it's the personal which is related to the cultural which is always the case as well and i think there's just an aliveness and a richness in that that i just get excited talking about in advance so i'm looking forward to it so nora just um i uh, wanted to get any any final closing thoughts from you Any any final things you wanted to say that perhaps we didn't cover um, I also just wanted to encourage everyone to look at it in the camera to read combining mm. uh, because it's fantastic. Um, and yeah, just any, any closing thoughts of, of what we've been covering that you'd like should, to. Uh, should
1: I on. read something?
0: I'd love that. Yeah. That would
1: be fun. Yeah. Do you have any requests?
0: Um, no, I want you to follow your, uh,
1: follow your intuition with it. Um. Okay. The basic premises of how each day is lived into existing systems is in relation to time. When and what a meal is, with whom the food is eaten, the pace of conversation, breath, heartbeats, the laundry schedule, the shopping hours, holidays, walking the dog, the tempo of family shoes and coats in the doorway, coming and going, the workday commute. The compost bucket is full again. The bills need to be paid again. Habits stitch the rituals and smooth assumptions of what is needed materially to produce the next day. Moment to moment clocking and banking of time spent. What happens when the relationship to time changes? This is the secret undergrounding of unseen changes. Changes whispering to each other, changes in Morse code. The tempo shifts. All of life is rhythmic. Unfold contracted hours packed like foam mattresses in small boxes into the open air, and soon they will never fit back into their packaging. Change the rhythm. Change the dance. The chickens and the garden are still in ancient time
0: that was beautiful. Thank you so much Nora. I love I love that we end on the words ancient time. That feels very uh very nice. So, as always, been an absolute pleasure. I think we could probably delve in for hours and hours, but um yeah. we will um I'll see you in on the course in in the new year and again, I really encourage everyone to check out Combining. It's beautiful. I would say it's more than just a book. I'd say it's an experience. There's a lot going mm-hmm. on in here. So, mm-hmm. thank you for writing it as well and uh yeah. Take care and see you soon.
1: Thank you. And it's been a real pleasure. And I'm so glad that you're enjoying it. And just to also say this book is not just me. There's uh, lots of artists and other people who've, you know, really put quite a bit of their their love and attention and expression in. So um, it's, it's been, of course, it can't just come from one voice. Thank you so much. It's wonderful mm-hmm. to be with you. See you in January.